Good morning, everyone. Great to see you, church. Excited to open the scriptures with you. If you're new, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and have it uh, have it a real joy to be with you this morning. If uh, you have kids uh, up through fifth grade and you'd like them to go to some age-specific teaching, there are wonderful teams of people outside ready to help you find your room, and I uh, hope that kids will have a terrific time being together. The rest of us uh, will be this morning in Proverbs chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, you might turn there. And uh, if you've got one of those blue Bibles in the back when you came in, we're on page 309 in those Bibles. Page 309. As Todd uh, prayed, we uh, have been in a series this month, a little unusual for us. Normally we start in a book of the Bible and just work our way through paragraph by paragraph through that whole book. But in this short series, we've been asking, what does the book of Proverbs say on a particular topic? So instead of going sequentially through the book, we've been asking, what does the book as a whole say? And so we've been jumping around in the book itself. We've been thinking about money and wisdom, and uh, we've acknowledged that the Bible has a lot to say about that. Even this one short book does. And we've wrestled a bit with the fact that how we use the resources entrusted to us is not ancillary to the life of faith. That this has a lot to do with living lives that honor God. Proverbs has given us um, a, a set of priorities in relationship to money and a way of thinking about them. Today we'll finish out that series together. And next week, Lord willing, we'll be starting uh, in the book of Daniel. So we've talked about work, give, save, and today we're going to think about spending. After we have uh, sacrificially given and thoughtfully saved, then what are we to do with the rest of what's been entrusted to us? That's our topic this morning. Now, the book of Proverbs doesn't give you um, a sample budget, all right? Proverbs 32 is not here's exactly what to do in every category. If you look in the back of the Bible, there's not a, uh, a page that will give you that either. And even if you buy a really fancy Bible that comes in a box, there's not a plug-and-play USB drive that will allocate your money for you. Now, the Bible doesn't give us that level of detail. Instead, it points us to a relationship with God. So, far more important than hard and fast rules on what to do with every dollar. Instead, what Christianity provides is a living, breathing, warm, loving relationship with God. And in that relationship with God and then with each other, as we open the Scriptures together, we're given sufficient wisdom for what we ought to do. Here's the big idea of what we'll be considering this morning. When it comes to spending... We are to enjoy what we spend without guilt and without glory. Enjoy what we spend without guilt or without glory. That's what the book of Proverbs teaches when it comes to spending. We're to not feel bad about the things that we buy, and we're to not revel in them, not to find our identity in them. If we can avoid those two extremes, we'll be doing what the book says. We're going to look this morning at five uh, sets of Proverbs. So imagine one for each finger, and in so doing, we will be helping 
each other get a handle on our spending. Come on. Most of the Proverbs we've already studied over the last month would relate to spending. And so if you took notes, or uh, perhaps if you go back and look at the YouTubes or podcasts, and uh, write down the scriptures we've already looked at, all of them in some way, shape, or form would have some bearing on what we would be talking about today. But I want to go to some other verses that we haven't yet looked at and ask how do these Proverbs relate to a spending, the spending that's left over after we give and save. So we'll start in chapter 13. And would you look with me, if you would, please, at verse 7. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. This may be the most significant thing we talk about this morning. Church, don't be fooled. Appearances are just that. Appearances are just that. Some of the most foolish purchases are made to project a certain image. But friends, maybe more than we've ever imagined. Someone's clothes or car, their condo or house, the vacations or how new their computer is. None of those things reveal truly what someone is worth. And I'm not even talking there in a spiritual, ontological sense. I'm just talking about how much money they have. Those things don't reveal that. I have interacted over the years with people who I later found out were multimillionaires. And I had absolutely no idea. I've interacted with other people who I thought had a lot of money, only to a few months later be offering marriage counseling due to the suffocating level of debt they're in. When it comes to spending, things are often not what they seem. Don't be fooled into spending or withholding for the sake of appearances. Beloved, what you choose to spend on a particular purchase and what lifestyle you choose to live within should not be about looks. Because wealth can't communicate who you are. Money is a deficient source of identity. Your net worth is woefully inadequate as a vehicle of communicating value. That's simply not what money is for. If we ascribe any of those things onto the shoulders of money, it will collapse. It can't hold the weight. It's not its purpose. Make your purchases on the basis of what you think you need and what you enjoy not what you think others will think about you. We live in an era in which it's possible to get essentially anything on credit by taking on debt. And so, perhaps more than at any point in the history of humanity, this proverb bears itself out right in front of us. Appearances are just appearances. So avoid spending for the sake of looks. Now, if we look at the very next proverb, it is much related. Verse 8, The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Church wealth comes with its own difficulties. 
after we move past the recognition that what we have or what we project is only about appearance, then we move into this very next idea. And that's that being poor is hard. But so is being rich. Friends, we've got to get it out of our heads that somehow some measure of money would equal an easy life. It doesn't work that way. Since we live in a fallen world, our interactions with money and possessions will never be without complication. Whether that's a little interaction or a lot. And so in this sermon, we're trying to glean wisdom about spending. Not spending as it relates to the amount, but just the discipline of it. Very early on as we think about spending, most of us probably need to hear something hard. Your life will not be any easier if you had more than you do now. Our struggles with spending too much or in giving are very, 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 very little in relationship to how much we have. You see, money is a matter of the heart. So at the deepest motive, when we think about spending, what I want to encourage you toward is to love God because God's lovely. To treasure Jesus above all treasures. To give yourself completely to Him because only He will satisfy. And when you do that, then you'll find you feel very differently about money regardless of how much of it you have. Jesus can give you what no purchase ever can. He is the satisfaction your soul is longing for. That's the ultimate goal. So in this series, as we're talking about money, we're actually trying to highlight God and hold up Jesus Christ. That's the aim. That's the ultimate motive. And yet, it's not the only motive. Or maybe to put it differently, if that's the goal, then for some of us that can feel very much unattainable. And so if that high motive feels too high, let me point to a lower motive. Because no motive is terrible. A low motive is better than no motive. So let me appeal to you there. Don't spend what you spend because you think it will solve your problems. It won't. And even if it could, then all it would do is create new ones. The aim in our lives is contentedness. And to reach a point of contentedness, we have to have a commitment to crucify the idolatrous desire for more. The beast of more will never be tamed. It is always a mirage off in the horizon you think just that next raise will get you there. But it won't. Think about all the problems that are attendant to wealth. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 8 gives us one. And yes, it's an extreme. And that's the point. It's to show us even your life could be tied up in this issue. But it sets a principle or a pattern for what's true for lesser problems. 
This proverb notes that wealthy people may get kidnapped and face a ransom for their lives. Friend, if you don't have much, nobody's going to swipe you because you're not worth much. That's what the proverb says. There are heartaches and worries you will possess with money that you simply will not have without much money. When you go to Target or jump on Amazon, don't salivate over everything you could purchase. Buy what you need and enjoy and turn off the desire for more. The people who can buy everything they want in the end simply do not have it easier than you. Quit spending to try to be like them. You don't want to be them. Be yourself. Even if you have to start with telling yourself, I'm starting at the low motive. I don't want to get captured. And then I'll aim for the high motive. I want to know God. All right? Now look at chapter 14, verse 23. In all toil, there is profit, but mere talk only leads to poverty. Church spending flows from the profits reaped of hard work. I think every single week, we have considered some verse in relationship to work. That's because Proverbs says that's where money comes from. That's how you get it. Brothers and sisters, if you've not worked hard for a sufficient amount of time, then don't expect to have anything. That's where it comes from. If you've gotten yourself into a lot of debt, then understand that your prior decisions to accrue more than you could afford will mean later you have to make the decision to live on less than you could now afford. That's what debt does. It doesn't make debt wrong or sinful, but it does mean that the decision at one time to purchase more than you should or can or actually have will mean later there's a delay over buying what you then could. There are purchases that are almost impossible to make apart from some level of debt. But most debt, especially consumer debt, will leave you with more toiling later rather than today. So we're to work hard, toil in a God-honoring way, knowing that from that hard work, God will entrust us with money. And what's that money for? Well, it's to give, it's to save, it's to spend. It's not more complicated than that. Yes, give first, yes, save second, but by all means, spend after that. God's design is that we would work, and from that work, we would get what we need. Now, of course, there are extenuating circumstances. Some people have physical or psychological issues that make work impossible. Some people find themselves behind because of some severe crisis that came up. Some people really can't afford their bills even if they're living very frugally. And when families can't cover these kind of situations, 
The church's responsibility is to step in and take care of her own and to do so with joy. But in all other cases, what we need comes from what we earn. This is not a broken worldly system that needs reform. It's not economic injustice. This is normal. It's always been this way. And because we have different jobs, we have different salaries. Because we have different salaries, that means we have different amounts of money. But friends, if money isn't the barometer of value, if our identity in Christ is based on who He is and what He's done for us, then we can be equals in the Lord, irrespective of what tax bracket we're in. We can be a family without being communist. We work, we earn, we save, we give, and we buy what we need. Now, my guess is so far I've not said much of anything that's been new or controversial or surprising. But I can't leave you there. So flip with me all the way back to 27, chapter 27. For some, the next couple of minutes are going to ruffle your feathers. Proverbs 27, verse 18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. Church, this proverb means that we are to enjoy what we buy. Enjoy what we buy. Give me a few minutes to try to explain that. When people start wanting to honor God with their spending, or maybe we could put it this way, if sometime over the last month, as we've opened the book of Proverbs together, we've considered what God says on the topic Maybe you have been convicted in a way you never have before. Maybe you've been inspired to handle money differently in 2021. Maybe you really want to make progress in this area of your life. When that happens, sometimes things get really, really weird in some Christian circles. There can be a sort of odd, unspoken standard that nobody's actually voiced but somehow everyone seems to know it. We can look at people who don't spend very much and who don't seem to enjoy anything and think of them as the epitome of godliness. But godliness does not equal stinginess. Now God may gift some people with a particular passion and desire and gifting to live on almost nothing and give all the rest of it away. God may call some people to live in a mud hut in Africa. But that's not God's call for everyone. God gifts some to teach, some to administrate, some to help, some to give. These are spiritual gifts. And to one degree, a Christian 
has to have some level of proficiency at all those things. But the person with the gift of giving is going to give more. Just like the person with the gift of teaching is going to teach more often and be better at it. Even the person who spends very little and gives very much is to enjoy what God's provided for them. There's nothing inherently mature about being miserly. Instead, God wants us to enjoy what He gives us. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. That's what that means. How do I know that? Well, why did the author who wrote that verse pick a fig tree? I imagine you've already spent a good hour this morning pondering that very question. Woke you from your stupor. Now, really, uh, most of us, our exposure to figs was when Mama gave you a Fig Newton because you were having issues as a kid. That's about all the figs we've ever touched. But what's up here? Well, church, this was written in a particular moment in time. And back in ancient Israel, to grow figs was uh, more than you might think. You see, the most common crops were wheat for half of the year and olives for the other half of the year. And from those two crops, you had most of what you would need in terms of daily survival. You could make bread and you could cook whatever else you had with olive oil. And from that, you then had what you basically needed. Now, Israel, most of the land of Israel is very, very similar to the land that we live in. And those of us who are in this region of the valley, right here in Tempe, we're a bit deceived because Tempe's old. Therefore, there's these weird things that grow like this and have leaves on them. But if you go further out into the newer parts of the valley, you'll see it's very barren. There's almost no trees, not much is growing at all. That's the way most of Israel is. See, in the desert, not much grows. And what does grow tends to die. And the crops that survive, on their own, without any help, don't tend to produce anything that tastes very good. So welcome to most of the land of Israel. Figs were a treat. Figs were, are a very sweet fruit that almost tastes like candy. If you live in a dry, hot desert, but you get figs, you are a rich, rich soul. Remember, they didn't drive to sprouts. There was no fries, no whole foods. You ate what you could grow. And if you were blessed enough to have a fig tree and you could eat from the figs, then you had arrived. You'd made it. But not only that, if you do a study of figs in the Bible, sounds riveting, doesn't it? Here's what you'll find. One scholar puts it this way. Figs symbolize the good life. To live under one's fig tree stood for a life of settled joy, peace, 
and prosperity. There's even a verse that talks about in the new heavens and new earth, we'll all eat figs. Still sure you want to go to heaven? (laughs) I believe what the proverb is saying is more than if you grow an apple tree, you'll eat its apples. It's like, no duh. What it's saying is, enjoy the fruit of your labor. I don't think any church member, uh, at least right now, makes their living by growing crops. There's a few weirdos that are trying to grow stuff in their backyards. But most of us, for most of us, this application would be, do your work and then enjoy what you can buy as a fruit of your labor. Friends, there's nothing inherently ungodly about savoring a terrific meal or buying a better bike or splurging on a new book or ordering pizza and having it delivered for movie night. A weekend away. New shoes. A painting for the wall. These aren't ungodly purchases. The Scriptures hold up a worldview such that you can buy whatever you can afford without any guilt or glory. Real godliness and holiness do not require you to buy your furniture at yard sales and to wear your grandma or grandpa's clothes. If you give first and you're always open to giving more, meaning if I have $100 and after prayer I decide to give 15 of those, then the other 85 aren't mine. It's all God's. And so if I remain open with that 85 to some unique opportunity God may give me to help somebody else, then I ought not feel bad about whatever I do with the 85. Take pleasure in a new shirt. Delight in a cup of coffee. When you enter that new apartment, enjoy it. The enjoyment of something good that God has provided ought to culminate in praising Him. Why? Well, because every good and perfect gift comes from above. After the first gathering this morning, I stood at the back door just to say goodbye to people. And an older lady came up to me with big tears in her eyes and said, no preacher has ever told me to enjoy something before. That is a mockery of Christianity. Christianity is the path to the greatest, endless, boundless joy. And friends, That joy isn't somehow only in the spiritual box. No, you see, whatever God gives us, whether it's a lot or a little, it can be eaten, worn, driven in, slept on, in such a way that it reminds us of what God's given us spiritually. And isn't that what it's for? Doesn't it round out into praise 
of God. There is no spiritual, physical dichotomy. I think that's what this is ultimately rooted in. Maybe in the coming week, instead of praying at the start of the meal, why don't you eat the thing and love it and then pray at the end? Because God's given it to you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Now, you might feel a little bit of smoke coming out your ears right now. Maybe you're saying, Chuck, you cannot get all of that out of figs. So let me show you two other passages. All right? I want to confirm this for you with more explicit text. They'll both be on the screens behind me. The first one, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. For this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What a passage. It's just saying, whatever God gives you, enjoy it. Now, some of you, that just might kill you. No, it won't. What you've been given has been given to you by God for you to enjoy. So enjoy it. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. I'm a New Testament Christian. And they're serious. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's what I mean by the word glory. Don't be cocky and prideful and arrogant because of what you have. Don't be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to grit our teeth and get through. No, to enjoy. Friends, whatever God gives you, enjoy it. It is not godly to be unhappy. It's the opposite. Now, the reality is, some of us don't have any trouble at all enjoying purchases. In fact, you make the purchasing a sport. And you're in the Hall of Fame. Like everything else when it comes to wisdom, there's got to be discipline. A freedom that God has given shouldn't be abused. So build a budget. And let that budget, which you revisit regularly, have space for non-essential spending. But use that budget to sort of build guardrails so you don't spend over the cliff. Freedom without restraint is slavery. 
freedom with restraint is the only freedom that's really freedom. So spend first on the things you need in order to survive. I can remember when Jill and I were first married in our 20s, and when a purchase came up that was felt like an adult purchase that wasn't any fun, like a water heater, then I would get so irritated about that. Here we work hard and we save so we have money to do fun things with. Well, um, that's not actually how it works. We, we, we work, we save, we do some fun things, but gosh, you can enjoy a hot shower to the glory of God. I don't know that you can take a cold shower to the glory of God. So that purchase is an important purchase. It's part of what God's given. Spend on what you first need to survive. Budget for food, for utility bills, for rent, for your mortgage. Put money aside for health insurance. If you're at a situation in life where there are others dependent upon you, then you ought to have life insurance. Then you've got to factor in what's called sinking funds. Yes, you need those even here in Phoenix. Sinking funds are the things that come up regularly, but not every week. So think about your if you own a car. Then guess what? Every year, you're going to get a bill. And that bill will require you to pay your tag. And if you don't, you're going to get pulled over. But those kinds of things are often what break budgets. And so factor in gifts, those things that are not unheard of, but they're uncommon. And after you've done all of that, unless you are leaning way in because you've gotten out of control with debt and you've got to pay that down, then you'll probably have a little bit left over. After you've given, after you've saved, after you've invested in a budget in the most essential things, hopefully there'll be a little left. And I want to encourage you today to go get figs and to enjoy every morsel of it and to do so with gratitude in your heart to God. Again, if you struggle with spending, give yourself some guardrails. Maybe you need more guardrails than just a budget. Many people find it beneficial to make a commitment to wait 24 hours before you make an unplanned purchase. Most urges pass. Maybe you don't need the thing after all. Make a list before you go to the store so that every squirrel that goes by you don't want. And remember, a good deal isn't a good deal if you can't afford it. So don't let ads and sales suck you in. Now let's look at one final proverb, and it's my favorite when it comes to the issue of spending. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. I'm making it easy to remember here. 15, 16, 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord 
than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Church, we've got to keep money and possessions in perspective. Beloved, we've spent the last month together talking about money, but money, while it's a significant aspect of daily life, and the Bible has a lot to say about it, don't misunderstand. The Bible does put money in its proper perspective. It tells us that money is not ultimate. All the spending in the world can't counterbalance the neglect of the most important things in life. Your relationship with God, your relationship with people, these are far more important than money. Money matters. It's a gift from God entrusted to us to steward well. Money can really, really help people when they have needs. Money can be used for the glory of God. It can deepen enjoyment in life. But money doesn't matter in any kind of ultimate sense. Money is only of relative importance. So may we be a church full of people who enjoy what we spend. But may we also be a church full of people who are wise enough to know that this much spending doesn't equal that much joy and this much spending equal that much joy. That, that, that's just not true. I have traveled all over the world, been in many, many, many third world countries, gotten to know people pretty close who live in conditions that you cannot imagine and whose joy is many times higher because the idolatry of stuff isn't weighing them down. Your joy is not dependent on how much you have. Joy is dependent on an attitude of gratitude all bound up in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. Speaking of Jesus, he said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, we all know that we're living in the middle of a pandemic. And this has been a rough experience. We're coming up on a year. A year of living like this. But what's far worse than living in a pandemic and knowing it is living in a pandemic and being clueless about it. Imagine, friend, if we did not have the scientific advancements to tell us what COVID-19 is. Imagine living through the last year with some mysterious illness that about a third of us have gotten sick from. Imagine watching grandma and grandpa die. There's been roughly 430,000 Americans died. Imagine all those people dead without any awareness of why they died. Knowing there's a pandemic is rough. This morning, my closest friend back in Oklahoma texted me to tell me his mother just died. Imagine him not knowing what killed her. Why her lungs filled with fluid and then her kidneys failed.
this has been bad. But we know what we're dealing with. I am convinced that we are also in another pandemic. It's a pandemic that has affected far more than COVID-19. And I'm convinced we're spreading it among each other, unaware. Some have called it affluenza. Affluenza spreads when we look for worth in our net worth. And then we buy stuff and spread our shoulders and feel big. Affluenza ravages churches. When those who have less are ignored and those who have more are given deference. Affluenza wrecks homes when fathers don't invest in their kids because they're far too concerned about investing in the stock market. Affluenza steals your spiritual vibrancy when you're always looking for that next purchase instead of just enjoying what you already have. Affluenza is everywhere. How do we bend that curve? How do we help one another avoid the perils of this spiritual sickness? How do we become more aware of the impact of greed and materialism? And how do we enjoy Jesus instead? Friends, the whole month has been building to this moment. Because while we've talked about working, giving, saving, and spending, none of those things, in the end, are what life is fully and finally about. So I want to take the last moments we have to point you to something far greater. You've almost certainly heard the verse, I can do all things, From basketball players to politicians. From businessmen to well-meaning parents of four-year-olds on soccer fields. Everyone seems to know Philippians 4.13. In fact, I think it's become a replacement for John 3.16. It's the verse everybody knows. But do you know what it actually means? Now, if you're new to the Bible, one of the most important things you can learn about how to read the Bible is that the Bible is not a series of disconnected thoughts. No, each verse has something to do with the other verses around us. So in Bible study, we have a saying, it's context is king. And all that means is, this verse isolated from the ones around it. I'm probably going to mess it up. I need to understand it in light of the ones around it. Are you with me? Okay, so let me show you the verses around Philippians 4.13. Verse 10 says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. This is Paul writing to a church he founded. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Have you ever thought of 
looking at having a lot as facing something. I love that verb. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Friends, the all things has to be confined to the paragraph it's in. All things means something like this. I can live with a lot and I can live with a little. I can feast or I can fast. I can have tons saved or none at all. My life is not rattled by money. Now that's a relatively easy thing when, to say when your job is going well and your IRA is rising. It's something entirely different when the bottom has fallen out in life. And friends, Paul wrote those words when the bottom had fallen out in life. He was in prison in Rome. He had literally nothing. The only way he even ate was if a friend brought him food. The Romans did not feed their, soul, their, their uh, uh, prisoners. Paul was not in a season of plenty, but yet he was finding he could do all things. How? Well, he didn't have access to to some secret manual of Christianity. No, he had access to the exact same thing that you and I do. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Church, the key to joyful contentment is Christ. The reality is, you can live with a lot and you can live with a little. Because Christ is in you and He can strengthen you. You see, life is not about wealth. Life is about knowing Jesus. And when you know Jesus, that's enough. However much you have is enough. Work, give, save, spend. But far more important than any of that, know Jesus. Know Jesus as Lord as Savior, as King, even as friend. He died for you. He rose again. He's reigning now. Friend, when you know Jesus, and when we help each other, reminding each other, hey, you do know Jesus, then we can do all things through Him who strengthens us. With a five or with five million? It does not matter. Father, I pray you take this series and use it in remarkable ways for good. Would you transform how we think about working and giving and saving and spending that we, in the power of your Spirit, would live and joy, and contentment, that we'd hold all things loosely because you hold us fast. Where we spend what needs to be spent and we do so happily. Where we save and we save not so that we don't ever have to work, but so that there's more to give. 
and to not live in the panic and anxiety of an unexpected bill. But more than anything, we pray that our interactions with money would drive us to see you, to know you, to savor you, to honor you, to be used by you. Lord, I pray in the coming hours and days, we would often discuss these things with each other. Because in reality, changing the relationship we have with money and possessions doesn't happen in a one-month sermon series. It's sort of an all-of-life pursuit. And we can't do it alone. So as you strengthen us, please help us to strengthen each other. In Jesus' name, amen.